Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwununu. We have a special edition of the pod today. It's an interview with a journalist and author named Lauren Grush. And she's written a new book called The Six, The Untold Story of America's First Women Astronauts. It's a fascinating, riveting story. I think you'll get a lot out of it. And she tells the story of Sally Ride, Judy Resnick, Anna Fisher, Kathy Sullivan, Shannon Lucid, and Ray Seddon. Uh, the first six women chosen in the late 70s to go into space. Many of us are familiar with the Sally Ride story. But these other women, fascinating and this conversation will give you a sense of what was happening with the space program, why it took so long. You know, the Russians put the first woman in space in the early 60s. It took the U.S. another 20 years. Why is that? And what sort of things did these women have to deal with once they got into NASA? This is sort of a natural progression from the recent film Hidden Figures, if you read that book or saw that film. And I think you'll really get a lot out of this conversation. It'll really give you a sense of the challenges that they face, the adversity they had to overcome to really be there and be the first ones to break through those barriers as they were breaking through new barriers in space. Before we get started with this conversation, a reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium for early access to podcast episodes like this one, as well as extra clips and deep dives over at our members-only Instagram account. It's where I answer questions on a daily basis, as well as offer a weekly Mo News quiz. And we have a lot of exciting things happening in Mo News Premium in the coming weeks and months. It's also just a way to support what we're doing here at Mo News. If you like the daily podcast, the daily newsletter, the daily Instagram feed, all free, and you want to be able to support that and help us keep that going and growing, you can join Mo News Premium right now. It's just $7 a month or $70 a year. That is two free months on the annual package. We're also offering a free 30-day trial right now with the code Mo News Trial. You can check that all out over at mo.news slash premium. All right. With that, here's today's conversation. All right. I'm joined here by Lauren Grush. She's a space reporter over at Bloomberg, and she's out with the new book, The Six, The Untold Story of America's First Women Astronauts. Lauren, thanks for joining. Thanks so much for having me. And congrats on your first book. Thank you. Yes, it's definitely been a labor of love. Three years in the making. I'm finally ready for the world to see it. Let's begin there. What inspired you? I mean, as a reporter, we tend to kind of jump from story to story, um, you know, do a deep dive into the subject, write about it, and then sort of move on to the next thing. Writing a book is a whole nother challenge. Yes, I think, you know, most journalists do aspire to write a book of some kind. But I definitely struggled for a while in terms of what I wanted to write about. Um, You know, I've been reporting for nearly a decade now uh, in space. And reporting on space. I haven't been to space, but <laughs> good, I do. Uh, important I, I, correction. Yes. Yeah, I just want to be clear about that. Um, but as a woman in the space journalism field, you know, when I first got started, I felt very outnumbered. Um, you know, there's still quite a lot of men, both in the industry and reporting on the industry. Now, as I've been reporting for some time, I've found some fantastic women journalists covering the field with me that I call some of them my best friends. Um, but it still can be a, a, a struggle sometimes, you know, just being one of a handful of women in the room when these events are happening. And so that has been an important point for me or something that I like to discuss and, and focus on with my stories, you know, centering women's voices. And so I also wanted to do that with 
the book that I wrote. And I think it's pretty easy to talk about the men in this industry. There's obviously a lot of men who make news and they are very interesting to talk about. And I do not begrudge anyone talking about them or writing about them. I write about them frequently, but I really did want to find a topic that centered women's voices. And so that led me to look back on the women who came first because I was very interested in the women who came first in my industry. Uh, and that ultimately led me to this first group of women who went to space. And I felt like they their story hadn't been told as a group before. And so I saw an opportunity there. Yeah, I must feel like also growing up with like various Hollywood movies uh, and books about space, they focus on all the male first. I mean, whether it's Apollo 13 or you go back to the zoning on the on the movie title here about the Gemini astronauts. Uh, the right stuff. Are the right stuff. About? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but then recently we had Hidden Figures. And some of these stories are beginning to be told. Uh, To what extent did Hidden Figures sort of uh, inspire you or or motivate you in some way to also tell this story? Oh, it was absolutely a driving factor. And I love Hidden Figures. And that was kind of the model that I was going after was, you know, shining a light on a group of women uh, that that hadn't been, you know, discussed as a group before. You are joining me right now from Austin, Texas, but you didn't grow up too far away in Houston as a... uh, child of two uh, parents who worked in NASA. What did they do and and what was that like growing up in that world? Absolutely. So uh, yes, my parents worked their entire career on the space shuttle program. So this book is very near and dear to my heart in that capacity. Uh, My mother was the deputy orbiter chief engineer. I always botch that title. Uh, And then my father headed up the propulsion division right before he retired. And so the shuttle was you know, the defining symbol and thing that they worked on for their entire careers. As for me, I, uh, it was funny. I hated space growing up. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about you, but I'm sure as a teenager, uh, you probably didn't think the things your parents did were very cool. And so I was the exact same way Thought it was very nerdy. I thought they were losers, you know, they would make these jokes in front of my friends that made zero sense because they were very nerdy and had to do with engineers and engineering and whatnot. And so I really kind of, you know, moved away from space as much as I could. And it wasn't until I left that area. I also have to explain, like, the place that I grew up was filled with NASA engineers because we were all located next to NASA's Johnson Space Center. So everybody's parents had or everybody's parents were NASA engineers or worked for the space program in some capacity. So it wasn't necessarily unique to us. It was just how we lived our lives. And then it was when I moved away that I started telling people, oh, you know, my parents worked for the space program. They worked for the space shuttle. And people were very interested and curious. And it gave me this newfound perspective for what they did. And so that's when I started to become full circle because you know, obviously I loved math and science growing up, but I really gravitated towards storytelling and journalism. And then when it came time to choose the stories that I wrote, I started finding myself gravitating towards stories of space and science. And so it really did, it really was a, a great full circle moment. Um, but yeah, I, I tell that story all the time. It, wasn't a lifelong ambition by any means. If anything, I wanted to run as far away from space as possible as I could as a child. And it pulls you back in. Yep. (laughs) I want to get back to the book in a second. But as we speak right now, uh, the Indians just successfully landed on the moon, the fourth country ever to land on the moon days after the Russians crashed into it. 
Um, and there's been a lot of focus of late on the South Pole of the lunar surface. You are covering these issues. How big a deal is that landing? And give us a sense right now for the state of the moon and, and why suddenly we're, everyone seems so interested in it again. Absolutely. So watching uh, India land on the moon was actually quite cathartic and amazing because I watched them try to land on the moon the first time back in 2019, I believe. And that was a much more somber experience because it didn't, you know, it did crash. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it was nice to cut to, to finally see them succeed. And they were extremely happy. And then you mentioned the South Pole of the moon. It's a very exciting spot right now. The main reason is because there's been a lot of evidence that's been gathered by satellites and, and very spacecraft that show that there might be a good amount of water ice on the South Pole of the moon. And so why is that important? Well, if we want to send humans to the south to the moon someday to maintain a sustainable presence, we're going to need water. And anything that we carry from Earth costs money. So the things that we can get from the surface itself is much more cost effective and efficient if we were to go to send humans there. So if we can mine that water, we could potentially turn it into drinking water water that is used to water crops, or we could break it apart into rocket fuel. And that seems to be the most exciting thing that um, engineers are talking about because you can break it into hydrogen and oxygen, and those are the main propellants that are used in rockets, or there are some of them. Now, the issue is we don't know how much water ice there is. We just have evidence based on spacecraft and uh you know, instruments we have here on Earth, we really need to go there in order to figure out what it's like. So we need to send prospecting missions. And so that's why there's a bit of this quote unquote race to get to the South Pole of the moon, because we really need to figure it out because we can't we can't mine something unless we know if it's mineable, you know. And so that's ultimately what these precursor missions are all about is is trying to find water and figure out, you know, if it's something that we can leverage in the future. So you've also been covering the Artemis mission, which is the U.S. attempt to get back to the moon, not just with a, a craft like the Indians, but with a crewed vehicle. We haven't been there in 50 years. We're going back. Um, talk to us about the state of play as far as Artemis is concerned, what the timeline is based on the sources you're talking to. How realistic is it that we're back there with American astronauts in the coming years? Sure. So the stated goal of Artemis is to send the first woman and the first person of color to the moon. And right now that goal is uh, 2025, a landing in 2025. In terms of how realistic that goal is, I think you'd be hard pressed to find someone who thinks that's going to happen. Um, But that is kind of an ongoing theme for the space industry. You promise uh, very aspirational goals for landings and and for mission targets, and usually they are delayed. So, um, you know, I would I would say hopefully this decade we will achieve that goal again. Um, but we are making great strides. Uh, the first Artemis, the first big Artemis mission, Artemis One, tested out the giant rocket, the SLS, and the crew vehicle that they hope to use to send folks to the moon. Uh, that's the Orion and the SLS. And they didn't have any people on board, but they the mission successfully flew around the moon. And then coming up, we've already assigned the crew for Artemis Two, And this one's going to be a big deal because this will have, they have Victor Glover and Christina Cook on board, and they will be the first person of color and the first woman to go into deep space and fly around the moon. So they're not landing on the moon, but it's still a pretty monumental moment in terms of of letting more people into the program and 
allowing a wider array of people to experience these incredible firsts. So that's slated to fly as early as November of 2024. So it's a bit of a wait, but hopefully it will be worth it. And then there's just quite a, a, a lot of work to do in order for that landing to happen. You know, we've contracted SpaceX to build the lander NASA has, and they're in the works with that. They're currently developing their Starship rocket to turn that into a lunar lander. It flew for the first time this year in April. They're gearing up for their second test flight. So, you know, depending on how long it takes them to get that vehicle ready, that's ultimately um, one of the main things that will dictate the schedule moving forward. One of the questions we get is, we did this 50 years ago. Why is it so hard 50 years later? What do they tell you? Well, you know, I think it's definitely important to think about the context of when we did go back to the moon. It was very much a race with the Soviets. NASA's budget was greatly expanded in order to meet that goal. There was just this wild sense of urgency to make it happen for a sense of, you know, national pride. And we were in the Cold War. You know, that background and that history, I just don't think that those circumstances will ever happen again. So, mm-hmm. That ultimately contributed to its success and, you know, making sure that people worked quickly. Now we're working in a different state, right? So there isn't that same level of urgency. While, you know, a lot of people like to try and substitute China in for the Soviets as a reason that we should be moving more quickly. You know, a lot of people will frame it as, oh, NASA is in a race with China because China's trying to go to the moon now. You know, it's it doesn't have that same gravitas just because right. we've been there. You know, I, I don't think we're going to have the same level of need to to beat them like that. But they, they are trying to, to kind of make that case. And also NASA is working with, you know, much more limited budgets than they were during the 60s and the 70s. And at the same time, NASA is also trying to do things differently. So for the majority of spaceflight history, NASA has really been the one in charge of you know, building and overseeing the development of the vehicles it uses. And it's now shifting to this paradigm where NASA is becoming more of a customer. So they are trying to outsource the development and construction of the vehicles to commercial companies like SpaceX to help save money, improve efficiency, and, you know, ultimately foster a much more vibrant commercial marketplace. That's just going to take time. You know, whenever we transition to new methods of doing things, uh, it might be worth it in the long run, but there's going to be some hiccups along the way. So yes, it will take a while, but um, hopefully it will be worth it. And it's just also a reminder that getting to the moon is still hard. You know, just because we did it once before, <laughs> it, doesn't, point. Yes. It, doesn't, it doesn't make it easier. You know, if anything, there's been such a long gap and when we've done it that, you know, it's kind of like we have to start again. Institutional knowledge is important. And this Absolutely. is, it's, it's like getting there all over again with a whole new group of people. So your book takes us back, uh, focuses on the first group of women astronauts, uh, including Sally Ride, the first US woman in space. That happens in 83. The Russians first put a woman in space in 1963. And mm-hmm. I want to begin there. Why did it take the US so long? Take us back to the early days of the program, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, the exclusion of women, and the state of play in the 50s Absolutely. and 60s. So going back to what we discussed, you know, we were very much in this urgent race with the Soviets during the space race. And so the singular goal was to beat them and putting a human on the moon. And there was this kind of idea that anything that detracted from that 
was a detriment. It had to, it was not important. It, it was a distraction. And so when women were fighting to be included in the space program back then, I think that was a very overarching thought among many of the the lawmakers and officials at NASA at the time. It was just, we don't have time for this. We need to focus on getting a man to the moon as quickly as possible. And so they just didn't really take it very seriously. And, you know, there was a detail in the book, you know, there's plenty of books that have been written about them. They're a great, amazing story uh, of a group of women famously known as the Mercury 13. It's not a great name for them. Uh, I believe a producer gave that name to them in the 90s or something like that. But (laughs) It refers to 13 women who passed the same test that the Mercury 7 underwent in order to get into the program. And ultimately, they just wanted to keep training. They just wanted to keep pushing themselves and seeing if they had what it takes to get to space. But their efforts were blocked. And when they went into, they took it to a congressional hearing in order to fight and to keep going. And ultimately, you know, they were denied. And while everyone kind of gave them lip service, like, oh, you know what, it is important to send women to space. Again, they just did not prioritize it because, you know, they were all so focused on beating the Soviets. And so, you know, it's it's just a it was not a great time, not a great look for NASA. And and just to be clear, the reason that women couldn't be part of the space program back then was because NASA made it a criteria that you had to have jet flying experience. And the, you know, women were banned from flying jets for the military. So it was this awful catch-22 that uh, prevented them from entering the program. You mentioned a program, though, in the book that I, I didn't know much about called WASPs. Yes. And the female pilots of the 1950s. Yeah. I mean, it, it just goes to show that there were many accomplished women pilots at the time. And they wanted, you know, they were they were given this opportunity during the war to expand their opportunities and learn to fly, uh, you know, military aircraft. But then once the war was co- ending, you know, the idea was like, oh, we we want the men to be able to go back to what they do best. We don't want the women to be able to, to replace them. And so they, that ultimately was disbanded. But it just goes to show that there were many women pilots to choose from at the time. It wasn't a lack of women pilots. It was just a, a lack of prior prioritization. Yeah, and, and the numbers are stark that you lay out in the book that at the time in the early 60s, women made up 1% of engineers, 10% of scientists. So even even the group NASA had to choose from was limited at that juncture. Yeah, that that's ultimately the primary point. It's that NASA created this criteria. They created very stringent, very limiting criteria. And so even if you know they were able to fly and have the jet hours that they needed, they still made it extremely hard for women and people of color to have the necessary expertise to join the program. And so ultimately, NASA made the decision in the 70s to relax that criteria. And also the world was changing during that time. We had the civil rights movement and the feminist movement. And so, you know, more and more people who hadn't had access to you know, academia and those resources before were gaining access. And in combination with NASA making a concerted effort to relax the criteria and to focus on finding uh, underrepresented groups to join their program that allowed, you know, a much more inclusive group of astronauts to come on board in the 1970s. So yeah, let's talk about the 70s here. I think you note in the book, uh, or someone makes a note in the 70s that uh, at a certain juncture, NASA had sent three females into space, two spiders and a monkey. And then comes 1978, the first six women are selected. How do we get there? 
Sure. So like I said, NASA made a point to reach out to women groups and to people of color. They made it a priority for them. And I think that's just a really important point to make is that, you know, when it comes to these diversity inclusion programs, you know, when you make the effort, you find the people that are the best for the the role. And it's it's not just something of a, oh, you know, if we list it, they will come. It's like they actually went out and looked for these people. They they advertised to Lions groups, universities, uh, high schools, places where they knew these people would be. And so that way that they could help spread the word of the program. And then, um, you know, there's a great description in the book about how each woman you know, found the the selection at the time. And I also think that I love to, to make this point as well as not all of them had a lifelong ambition to be astronauts. Some of them did, you know, some of them dreamed of being astronauts since they were little girls, but half of them really only considered it when they first saw the, the advertisement, you know, in the newspaper or on the radio or wherever they saw it. And I think that's just such a great point. You know, it's when we open up these programs for people, we find people that would never have considered it before. And one of those people that had never considered it was Sally Ride. And she would Mm. go on to be the first American woman in space. So that's ultimately how they came to the program. And then they had to go through a very rigorous selection process, which um, I also found very interesting. Yeah, I, I, I have to say in reading the chapters about each of them, how they found out about it almost, I mean, I, I don't know if anyone's reached out to you about movie rights yet, Lauren, but it, <laughs> it, it does play out. I'm reading it. I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is a natural film. Like I'm seeing the scenes now of them, you know, first seeing these ads. You know, I did make a comment out of the blue the other day talking to somebody else, but it is kind of a fair analogy. It, I kind of treated it like a bit like Pulp Fiction, you know, it's kind of all these uh, interweaving storylines and how they come together at the same time. And that kind of plays out throughout the book too. You know, I kind of do like these flashbulb moments where it's just kind of checking in on each of them where they were during certain events. And yet you're right, like the point where they they all find out about it, I thought was just such a great moment because they all obviously vividly remember where they were when they when they learned about the selection. Yeah, we live in the day and age of uh, Netflix series, so maybe it's more of a series than uh, than a film. Either way, fascinating, and you do you also bring out the color and the personal lives of all these folks, and they have some interesting stories. So we're talking about the first six women here with Lauren Grush, the untold story of America's first women astronauts. We have Sally Rye, Judy Resnick, Anna Fisher, Kathy Sullivan, Shannon is it Lucid and Ray Seddon. They were part of this class of 78, which also included, by the way, the first astronauts of color, right? Yes, it was three black astronauts and the first Asian American astronaut. How did the nation, the media commentators react? I found this really interesting. And it's not so long ago in American history. I I found this fascinating. You know, when I talked to most of them, you know, they discussed how they felt like they were treated just fine at NASA. You know, there were obviously some hiccups along the way, some unenlightened engineers here and there. It was really the media that took the the biggest toll on them. You know, the first time they were presented as a group, they were presented to kind of a big um, auditorium filled with media personnel. And then after they were presented, they were offered up for interviews and the women were just bombarded with requests, whereas the men, you know, were they were off to the bar by the end of the day. So that just was like a small taste of what they were about to encounter because everyone was so enamored with them. They were such new and unique. And also they 
the press just couldn't wrap their minds around how men and women were going to fly to space together, which, <laughs> you know, is reflected in some of the questions they asked. You know, for instance, uh, you know, there was definitely double standards when it came to the women who had children. Even at the very beginning, when they announced uh, the group of women, a, a reporter asked what he referred to as admittedly a chauvinist or a sexist pig question. But he asked if Shannon Luce's three kids were considered uh, when she was picked. Obviously, many of the men had children as well. Do you think any of the press asked if that was considered for them? I doubt it. And that was just reflected more and more as they went forward. You know, they were bombarded by cameras and photographers when they were undergoing water survival training. They had to learn how to, you know, land under parachutes in the water because they were doing, they were flying in jets, part of their training. And during that, uh, that exercise, you know, there were barges of photographers and, <laughs> and uh, media people, you know, trying to get their picture while they're trying to do this delicate operation. And then, of course, you know, once the first woman was picked, the first American woman was picked, Sally had to deal with probably the worst of the worst when it came to questions. You know, she was famously asked if she wept, uh, if something went wrong in the simulator. Um, you know, people were asking her. I, there were some other questions in there, too. There's like, a question you mentioned from Tom Brokaw where she, uh, yes. you know, like, this is wild. He literally asked her, did she ever wish she was a boy? Yes. And she just, you know, she had to to have a very straight face and she handled them all very excellently. She just would be like, nope, just never considered it, you know. So just a testament that they really did pick uh, the right one because she handled it all with grace. But as you'll read in the book, it did also take its toll on her. You know, it was a burden that she carried for a really long time and something that, you know, she ultimately sought therapy for. Yeah, there's some you you mentioned some of the Johnny Carson uh, late night monologue jokes that he would make you know it's interesting because even today like you look back at even jay leno 20 years ago and it sort of makes you shudder at some of the things and this is 40 years ago uh and definitely yeah. some stuff that from the vantage point of today be shocked that that was the highest rated late night show and that was perfectly acceptable you describe you know it's, it's some fascinating anecdotes like them commiserating in the bathroom at nasa the female mm -hmm. um astronauts about various media Na nasa officials you go into the challenges of toilet testing to accommodate the, the women um, mm -hmm. on the shuttle because they'd only had men up there at that point. I found this interesting, and you can jump in here um, anywhere, that some of the wives of the male astronauts were some of the sources of, of some of the issues they faced. Yeah. So, for instance, you know, part of their training, the women had to fly in the backseat of NASA's T-38 jets and they had to have at least 15 hours a month of flying time. And so they weren't allowed to fly in the front seat because, you know, some of them had come in as pilots, but they hadn't been checked out on on the T-38 jet before. And so that meant flying with men in the front seat. And there was one or two wives of the astronauts who did not want the women flying in the back seat with them just because, you know, they didn't think it was proper having the women in such close proximity to their husbands. So, yes, there were definitely snafus when it came to the men and there were definitely snafus when it came to other women. You know, just at that time, you know, a lot of the men had not worked with women in a professional capacity before. You know, maybe they had worked with them as secretaries or, you know, um, other kind of lower roles. But this was probably the first time for many of them that they were on, on an equal playing field with women. And so some of them didn't handle it very well. And but over time, you know, ultimately they came around and saw how hard the women worked and, and just how capable they were of handling this job, just like anyone else could. 
So you have this class of 78 with the first six women, and then NASA has to figure out which one of them is going to go up first, which one is going to be the first American woman in space. Um, How do they come to the decision of sending Sally Ride up first? So this was probably one of my favorite chapters to write because I probably had some preconceived notion before I wrote the book, you know, that astronaut selection, especially when it came to cruise, was this, you know, very rigorous, objective process and that, you know, they typed a bunch of statistics into an algorithm and then it, you know, spat out the right person for the job. Obviously, that was not the case. So ultimately, I I detail um, a person who worked at NASA at the time, George Abbey, who's very instrumental in selecting this group of astronauts. Uh, to begin with, he was the director of flight operations at the time, and he was also the one who picked the crews. And so everybody was, you know, they kind of lifted him up as this mythological figure at NASA's Johnson Space Center at the time because he was the one that could put them into space. The problem with George is that he just never really let you know where you stood. So everything was very much a mystery. You know, were you on his good side? Were you on his bad side? You really had, it was a very opaque process. And so It was nice to kind of pull back that curtain a little bit when it came to Sally's selection. You know, George told me, he was like, there was really no magic about it. I just picked people based on the mission requirements. And if they had the right requirements, they would go up, you know. But I think for astronauts whose sole ambition is to fly is is probably more of an anxiety-inducing experience. Um, But for Sally's flight, one of the main objectives was to test out the robotic arm and do this um, type of maneuver called rendezvous and proximity operations, where they would pluck a payload out of the, the payload bay with the robotic arm, the remote manipulator system, place it in space, and then they would fly along with it, making sure that they didn't bump into it, but kind of keeping formation with it, with it, which is pretty tough when in space, you know, you're moving around the earth at 17,500 miles per hour. So it's not it's not as if you can just slow down really easily like you can in your car. And so at the time, Sally was extremely adept at the at the robotic arm. And um, she was, you know, neck and neck with some of her colleagues. And, but ultimately, George thought she was the best one for the job. Now, he did present his pick to his boss, Chris Kraft, and he wasn't necessarily on board with that decision. And so George had to go back and I'll leave it. To, I'll leave some mystery, but essentially came up with probably the nerdiest um, justification for sending Sally into space, which ultimately won out. So we've heard a lot about Sally Ride or to a certain extent. I mean, I have to say that, you know, reading some of these histories now, like, wow, well, I did never learn this stuff growing up. And I'm so curious about the the other five, because at least we've, you know, we know Sally is the first and then there's the other five. Any favorites or favorite anecdotes that you want to share um, about some of these women? Of course, we would lose Judy Resnick um, in the in the Challenger um, explosion. But uh, as you learned about these five women, share what you've learned. Absolutely. Well, that was basically the impetus for writing the book, right? I'll be honest. I was just like you. I really only knew Sally Ride. In terms of the other women, they were kind of a mystery to me until I really dug in. And so that was kind of what I hoped with the book was to, you know, be like, hey, you know, it could have been any one of these six who flew first. It just happened to be Sally for these, you know, various reasons, but they were all equally qualified and equally ready to go. Um, I've been asked my favorite before. I I just refuse to answer that question just because they're all my favorites. Um, Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I, what I loved about them, and I spend a good chunk of the book 
you know, going through each of their inaugural space flights is that those missions that they did were so unique and so interesting. I mean, I, I felt like it couldn't, it was written for me already because they, you know, each flight had something unique about it. So obviously Sally's came with that press attention. Judy's second flight, the second flight of American woman, there was a very scary abort and they weren't, you know, the people on board remember it very vividly. So that's one of those moments in the book where I really felt like I could get a great snapshot of that scene because it was such a a scary moment for them that they all very vividly remember it. And then followed it up, you know, Kathy Sullivan, she was the first American woman to perform a spacewalk. So then I got to dive into spacewalk training and all what all of that entailed, followed up with Anna, who was the first mother to go into space. So, you know, the emotions there in terms of leaving her child and and what that meant to her, you know, that was great to explore. But also Anna's flight is so cool because, you know, she went on a rescue mission for these satellites. And one of the things I think is so interesting is she went on the Today Show when those satellites were being launched and they failed, you know, right before she got there. And they asked her, hey, do you think NASA is going to go save those satellites? And she was like, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) Why would they ever do that? And then she ended up being on the mission that, um, you know, actually went out and saved them. So each of them had such a a really rich and interesting story to tell. And it, it was really great for me as the writer, because, you know, if I got bored with one of their stories, I could easily go to the other one and, you know, spend time with Anna and then go back to Judy and then go to Shannon. You know, it was just, it was a great way to keep things interesting and and moving. What was the thing that most surprised you in this research process? Um, My kind of go-to answer for that is, you know, I had these preconceived notions about astronaut selection and then also, you know, writing about them as a group. I kind of went in thinking, oh, this is going to be a tight knit group of best girlfriends who, you know, stuck together and through thick and thin and they were at each other's houses all the time. And obviously that's, you know, that wasn't the case. And, you know, it shouldn't be surprising to me because, you know, we're all, we are women, we're all different. We all have different desires and personalities. And, you know, that was also reflected in how they reacted to various things. So uh, a thing I detail in the book is something that the NASA History Office will uh, tweet from time to time. It's not a tweet anymore. It's a post or whatever. X. Uh, X, An X. Exhibit. Yes. (laughs) An exhibit. Yeah. You know, it's the makeup kit that they made for Sally Ride's first flight that was made by NASA engineers. And I think a lot of people kind of turn their noses up at that, just being thinking, oh, my God, how sexist. And yes, while it probably, you know, since it was probably made by a bunch of male engineers, you know, it's probably maybe not the best. But at the same time, you know, not every not all of the women reacted the same way, while some of them couldn't care less about wearing makeup. There were some of them that did. And I completely understand that because they were, you know, they were public figures. I, and whenever I go, millions of people are looking at you. Absolutely. I put on makeup when I, you know, do when when I'm doing my interview with you, I, whenever I go on TV, you know, I want to look presentable. So, you know, that, and so that was just a great illustration of, you know, yeah, some of them probably felt negatively towards some of the decisions that NASA made, but others didn't, you know, feel the same way. And I think that just is the same in how women react today. We all have different opinions and feelings about things. So Sally was selected as the first. How much pressure did she feel being the first woman 
uh, ensuring that, you know, she could not screw this up. She did not want to give NASA any second thoughts. Absolutely. Talk to me about what was going through her head. Well, you just, you pointed it out. So right there in your question, you know, one of the things she said before she flew was that she was most scared that she'd mess up. And I think there's a lot loaded in that statement because I think anybody will tell you if they're the first of a of a group to do something, you know, they're not just representing themselves, they're representing the entirety of that group. So she knew that if she made a mistake or, you know, there was some kind of debacle caused by her, it was the headline wouldn't be Sally Ride messes up in space. It would be all women can't fly to space, you know? And so she was very cognizant of that before she flew. No, thankfully, while she was training, you know, she had some kind of protection from the outside's attention because she was in training and she could use that as an excuse to turn down interviews. But when she came back to earth, that protection was gone. And so that's really when she felt the full burden of being the first American woman in space. She was constantly traveling, being asked for appearances, and it really started to take a toll. But also, eventually, she realized, you know, just how special her flight was, especially to young women. And that ultimately inspired her to go into uh, to create her her nonprofit, Sally Ride Science, which was uh, geared towards inspiring young women to go into STEM, which she ran with her partner, Tam O'Shaughnessy. There's an anecdote that's out there that NASA engineers thought she needed 100 tampons for her <laughs> ride to space. That's yeah, true. yeah. Uh, it's definitely another infamous scene. And uh, Kathy was there to back it up as well. So she had to do this bench check, which prior to launching, you know, you uh, you look over your supplies to make sure you're ready to take whatever items you want with you. And um, while she was doing this bench check, she grabbed Kathy to come kind of act as backup and uh, they both saw in in the supplies a pink uh, plastic tube. And so they grabbed at it and they pulled it out and another pink plastic tube came out and another one, another one. And they realized it was a bunch of tampons tied together like sausages. And so the engineers asked if 100 would be enough. And Sally was you know, no, that would, that, you could cut that in half and we'll be fine. <laughs> it's, it's a week it's, in space. <laughs> it says a lot about engineers or the NASA right. engineers too. You know, they like to be prepared, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, you have to think about your up mass, you know, every, everything you add, every pound of weight you add to the spacecraft is also. <laughs> uh, sure. I mean, and, and, and listen, right. And, and we, you know, briefly mentioned earlier that, you know, they had to figure out a whole bunch of cop, you know, the, the space suit for women and, mm -hmm. you know, like how you deal with toilet up there and all, all of that, that they had never thought about until these women joined the program. Right. And it just goes to show. I like to make this point a lot too. It's that these are all design choices that we make, right? Like the reason that they were, they became difficult is because they had originally designed things for men, but if they had been inclusive from the start, obviously it would not have been an issue. So it just, it just goes to show that, you know, when things are difficult is because of the design choices that we make. Um, and obviously, it might make things a little harder for engineers, but ultimately, it's worth it in the end because that means a, a wider a array of people will be able to fly and, and make these have these experiences. So you focus on, on the history there. You take us through the '80s, um, and then you know, kind of tell us the what what came of of all the women. 
what is the legacy of these six women and where is NASA today when it comes to uh, gender equality? In terms of the legacy, some of the women that I've talked to after them is really that they just made things easier for the women who came after. And I think that's true of any of the kind of the first pioneers like this, you know, Obviously, Sally made things extremely a lot easier for even just the first, the five women who came after her, just because the the amount of questions that they got, while Judy definitely got her fair share of dumb questions, and Anna also got some dumb questions about being the first mom in space, you know, that kind of attention abated over time. And so ultimately, that was kind of how they helped pave the way for women to come into the program, because they had already done it. And so, and then also when more women joined, you know, they had other women to talk to. So they, so people like Ray and Anna and Shannon, you know, they were able to kind of offer help in terms of, you know, how they handled certain situations. So if other women, you know, were dealing with certain things, you know, they had already dealt with it before. And so I think that's only grown as more and more women have joined the program. And then in terms of where we are today, you know, uh, we talked about the Artemis program, and I think that's a really great, you know, just goes to show how relevant the story is right now, because we are still trying to correct those missteps that we made back when we chose who we did to go uh, to the moon. But at the same time, there's still quite a ways to go. You know, I, I talk about uh, in terms of the statistics of women of color, you know, it's it's pretty abysmal. And as of now, I believe it's we're still the amount of people who've gone to space. It's still one sixth of them are, are women. So we we still have quite a ways to go in order to reach complete equality. But, you know, there are definitely more opportunities than ever before. Uh, we have NASA. We have these commercial space companies like SpaceX, Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic all striving to open up. Uh, the realm of space to everyone. Obviously, you still need a you need a substantial wallet in order to afford them, but it does provide more opportunities, more access than we had before. Going back to the decision by the Soviets at the time to send a woman into space, there was a lot of tit for tat. They send a satellite, we send a satellite. They send an animal, we send an animal. Uh, they sent a woman, and then we never did. Where was NASA? Where was the country in 1963 as to why we didn't then follow them into that? Yeah, it's pretty awful in terms of when you read about it, you know, they really tried to just blow it off. You know, whenever Valentina did fly, you know, it was, first of all, they they had all these rumors coming around that she was hysterical during their flight. And NASA really latched onto that. Reinforcing the gender stereotypes. Yeah, absolutely. So they were, they, you know, the press reported on unnamed sources who talked about how, you know, they were worried about women being hysterical in flight. And, you know, they also just kind of downplayed it at the time. They said, oh, it's just a publicity stunt. You know, it's not a serious thing from uh, the Soviets, which, to be fair, it kind of was in terms of if you look at the Soviets or the Russians track record in terms of sending women to space. We've obviously um, outnumbered them at this point. But at the same time, the fact that NASA was also downplaying it as a publicity stunt at the time, you know, just goes to show that they really didn't think it was much of a priority or that it was definitely not a race that they felt like they needed to win at the time. I should ask, are you uh, a watcher of For All Mankind on Apple? (laughs) You know, I hate to say it, but I'm not. 
but I have a good reason. So space is my work life and I spend quite a bit of time immersed into in, in all of things space. So when I turn off my work brain, you know, I go into fantasy mode. I go, <laughs> I don't want to go. In, yeah, you have to yeah. escape what you do day to day. I yeah. totally get it because I had a question related to that. It's a and for those who aren't familiar, it's an Apple Plus show, which uh, takes you through an alternate reality where the Russians land on the moon first with a with an astronaut or a cosmonaut. And what that how that would have changed American history. Basically, it would have propelled, you know, they, they argue it would have created a situation where we both have, you know, by this point. Uh, space tourism and bases on the moon, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So it's a fascinating alternate history for anyone interested. Yes. And I have heard some tidbits. For instance, I know Sally Ride does make an appearance on a nuclear propelled shuttle. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's all these interesting alternate realities. Somehow Ted Kennedy becomes president. You know, they, there's <laughs> like they, they really take you, you know, they change history through the 70s and 80s. Yeah. All if and by the way, this is interesting, and many Americans don't know this, because we were the first country to get there with people on the moon. Up until then, the Russians basically beat us to everything. Yeah, no, it was it was definitely not a guarantee that we were going to win it, by far. Lauren, I appreciate you joining me. The book is fascinating, The Six. Um, recommend everybody read it. Good luck with the first book. And again, you know, some of your chapters are natural adaptations for a screenplay. I wish you luck with that. Thank you. You put it out there, not me. <laughs> Listen, uh, if we could just on this podcast discuss buying the rights here, because I think uh, <laughs> I think I think we could do something interesting, Lauren. I love it. All right. I want to thank Lauren Grush again for that great conversation. I really think this book needs to be made into a film. You can get a copy of The Six, the untold story of America's first women astronauts, wherever you get your books. As we conclude here, a reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium for early access to podcast episodes like this one. Uh, the premium members get everything first, as well as extra content, deep dives, your questions answered, and the weekly Mo News quiz over on the members-only Instagram account. And frankly, if you just like what we're doing here at Mo News, supporting Mo News Premium is a way to keep us growing and growing. It takes a lot to put out that uh, daily podcast the daily newsletter, the Instagram feed. We do it all for free. And any support you can give us by joining Mo News Premium, making a donation, giving a gift would go an incredible way to keeping our coverage as good as it is. You can get it right now for $7 a month or $70 a year for Mo News Premium. That annual package is two free months. We also have a special deal right now, a Mo News trial, 30-day trial for free with the code MoNewsTrial. You can check that all out over at mo.news slash premium. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you soon.